Well, if you want to turn in your Bibles this morning to 2 Samuel, excuse me, chapter 23, that's where we're going to be studying the scripture this morning. How many of you have watched a uh, watched the commercials during sporting events and a very fascinating ad campaign uh, comes up called The Most Interesting Man in the World? The Don, the Don Secchi's commercial, I think, Dos Secchi's uh, commercial. And they put out a guy in his 70s that uh, is considered to be the most interesting man in, the, man in the world, reminiscing about his life and some of the exploits of his youth, and recalling some usually really exaggerated and extreme situations that he's been in. And he's been in these situations and been very cool, very calm, and just done some very incredible things. And that's what they put forward as the most interesting man in the world to us. Some of these events include freeing an angry grizzly bear from a painful trap and then receiving a hug from the grizzly bear when he's done. It is said that he found the fountain of youth but he didn't drink from it because, well, he just wasn't thirsty. It is said to him that his, his words carry so much weight that they would break a normal man's jaw. It is said that if he misspoke your name, you would change it to reflect the way that he said it. It said that he once allowed himself to feel awkward just to see what it would feel like because he had never felt it before. He once brought a knife to a gunfight just to even the odds a little. It is said when he meets the Pope, the Pope kneels and kisses his ring. He once got pulled over for speeding, and the cop gave himself a ticket. Superman has pajamas with his face on them. Bigfoot goes and tries to get pictures of him. Presidents take his birthday off, and he's never lost the game of chance. He is a life of parties he has never attended, and if he were to pat you on the back, you'd list that at the top of your resume. According to Dossesekis, that is the most interesting man in the world. And he ends a commercial with the tagline, Stay thirsty, my friends, indicating his love for an exceptional and exciting life. However, the world did not invent this idea of a man that lived his life to the fullest. The Bible did. The Old Testament tells us of such a man, a man who came from very humble beginnings and rose from insignificance. He was the least of his own family, probably the runt of the litter, he wasn't even really considered a son, even though he was a natural-born son of this family. Even his father left him out in the field when the prophet visited him to see his sons. He didn't even call him in. He was delegated to the worst job you could have at that time, and that was being a shepherd. He finally left home one day and left home to go be a musician. How many people here knows that if your daughter meets a musician, you really start to worry? Well, he goes off to be a musician in a crazy king's court. He had delusions of grandeur when he saw giants. He toppled the legitimate government at the time by circumventing the normal rate of succession for kings. He then went and became king of the only superpower that existed in the world at that time. And this man was so interesting and so awesome, and he had such an impact on salvation history that even our Lord Jesus will someday come back to reign on his throne. Amen. And just like the world's version of the most interesting man who reminisces about his incredible events of his life, we learn about the Bible's version of the most interesting man in his world by 
listening to him as he looked backwards on his life to see how God took a lowly shepherd named David from obscurity and made him king. So let's read about that in 2 Samuel 23, starting in verse 1. These are the last words of David. The oracle of David, son of Jesse, the oracle of the man exalted by the Most High, a man anointed by the God of Jacob, Israel's singer of songs. The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. My word was on his tongue. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Jacob said to me, when one rules over men in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings the grass from the earth. Father God, we thank you. And we ask, Lord, that you just take this message today. So whatever time that we have left on this life, that the, word, the way we live our lives will bring great glory to you. So that when we are sitting on the campfires of heaven, sharing our lives with other people, we'll have awesome stories to tell of your goodness in our lives and how you made our lives very, very interesting. And not only just interesting to try to bring praise to us, because that's not our heart. Our heart is interesting to bring praise to you, to see your kingdom go forth, Father. Because that is the best story to tell. Father God, just use this message to do that this morning in the study of your word. In your name, amen. Now the big idea that I want to get across this morning isn't so much that we want to go and be like David. As far as everything about him, we have to somehow incorporate into our own lives. But the Bible has a very specific thing that it says about David that I think is something that is worthy to incorporate into our lives. And that is that David was a man after God's own heart. That is an incredible epitaph of a life that is lived for God. Amen. How many people, you know, depending on where you're going to be buried or how you, when someday you go and meet the Lord, whatever happens to your body, if you're going to put it on a plaque or a tombstone, if you were to put, he was a man that had a heart after God, wouldn't that be something you'd want on your tombstone? Well, that's the epitaph of a life lived for God that David had. And that's what made David both the most interesting man of his time and still allowed him to be that man after God's own heart. And what we can learn from his life, is that, it, and that we can apply to our life, that if we live like he did, we will make a bigger impact for the kingdom of God. So how can we have this kind of heart? How do we have a heart that is after God's own heart? Let's look at several principles from David's life that he listed out here that allowed him to be the most interesting man of his world. Number one is that he learned to praise God no matter what. What did he say here? He said, I am this Israel's singer of songs. Of the 150 psalms that are in the Bible, David wrote over half of them. 
And there were many different kinds of songs. These weren't all songs of praise. These were not songs that, that he gave when everything was going good in his life. In fact, many of the songs are songs of a anguish and him expressing deep pain that was in his life. They're called Psalms of Lament. And their grief that he had in his life over him, things that were going on in his life or situations that were going on in his world that did not bring glory to God. There was also Psalms of repentance, most notice, notably Psalm 51, where he understood that what he did with Bathsheba grieved the heart of God. That his whole focus in that psalm was not that, that God necessarily forgive him or, or that he would heal him from feeling bad. It was that, God, I'm sorry I broke your heart. And that is an awesome, awesome example of repentance in the Bible. There are also psalms of ascent. A psalm of ascent was a joy of going to church. The Temple Mount was exactly that. It was on a mountain. You had to literally walk uphill to get to church. So people would sing songs of joy as they would walk toward the temple and sing songs of praise as they would enter his gates. We sing a song like that, enter his gates with thanksgiving in our hearts, enter his courts with praise. That comes directly from the Old Testament um, idea that as we walk to the temple, we're going to start the praise service a little early in how we come to church. And how many of us would benefit from learning some of that from those psalms? Instead of groaning when our alarm clock goes off on Sunday morning, how, how much better would it be that we were looking forward to it, that we beat our alarm clock to the punch and wake up five minutes early and say, I get to go to church, versus I have to go to church. I mean, which, which attitude is God going to bless? And David wrote the, of the joy that was in his heart in preparing to enter the temple of God in his psalm of ascents. And throughout the Psalms, we see David's heart of praise in all of his life situations. As a shepherd, again, this is the lowest job that he could have. If you were the son that was a shepherd, you weren't even loved by your father. I mean, you, you have a whole bunch of brothers in front of you that get to do all the cool stuff, and you're stuck guarding the sheep. Yet he used that situation to bring praise to God. In the awesome, most famous psalm, probably in the entire Bible, Psalm 23, where he was able to pen the words, even as he was rejected by his family, he was still able to pen the words, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me, even in the presence of my enemies. Isn't that an awesome expression that even in a low part of his life, even when he was being ignored by the world, that he was able to turn that around and praise God with it? He was able to write Psalm 2 when he's in Saul's court being wrongfully persecuted. He would write about nations raging and people plotting in vain against God and his Holy One, referring to himself. 
being wrongfully persecuted, when he was hunted by his son Absalom. If you remember in the Bible, his son Absalom tries to rest the, take the kingdom away from him, leads a rebellion, tries to kill his own father so that he could become king. And David wrote about that in Psalm 3, speaking of the pain of betrayal by those closest to you. Even when David sinned, he would still praise God through it. When he went into repentance, We've mentioned Psalm 51. Psalm 6 is another one that, that talks about the deep repentance he had for hurting the heart of God. When he needed deliverance, when he was out in the desert running away from Saul who was trying to kill him, he wrote Psalm 18 and 34, talking about the need for God's deliverance. And one of the keys that we find through studying the psalm is that David always expressed to God his true feelings with them. He didn't try to hide it. He didn't try to spiritualize it. He didn't try to have the, the stiff upper lip that us people of Western European des descent think that we have to have. We think that, oh, I'm fine. I'm good. How you doing? I'm good. My kid's on drugs. My wife left me. My pickup truck won't start. And my dog got run over. Sounds like a country western song. You know, if you play a country western song in reverse, you get all your stuff back, your wife back, and everything else. I don't know if you knew that, but. Thank you for that joke, Pastor. Um. <laughs> but David never, ever hid his true feelings from God. And I don't know why we think it's a holy thing to hide our fear, to hide our anxieties before other people, to, to, to put this face on before society that we have everything together. Because that's not how God wants us to live. David didn't do that. He lived heart first. He was an open book. If David was mad, you knew David was mad. If he was sad, you knew he was sad. If he was rejoicing, you definitely knew he was rejoicing. It said that he danced so hard on the streets of Jerusalem that his clothes fell off. Still had his loincloth on, but, you know, his clothes fell off. So that's a mega rejoicing if you dance your clothes right off your body, right? He wasn't afraid to express his deepest emotions before God. One of the people at District Summit had a great message about living heart first, as David did. And if you go to districtsummit.org, I think it's wmdsummit.org, you can listen to the messages at District Summit. It's a great message. But that brings us to the second point of our having a heart that is after God's own heart. Is that David acknowledged God as his only source. In verse 2 it says that the Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. And that's a very heavy statement when you consider that he is saying that the Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. It's hard to to bring this into comprehension, how serious it is when a person would invoke the word Lord in the Old Testament. And when I'm talking about Lord, I'm talking about the capital L-O-R-D. When a person would invoke the holy name of God, which, is, which would be transliterated Yahweh or Jehovah, some people say, in our language, that was a very, very heavy thing for them. If you misspoke that name, or if somebody would interpret that as you blaspheming God, you would be stoned to death immediately. So when 
David is saying that the Spirit of the Lord was upon me. He was invoking God's presence. He was invoking God's power. He was invoking God's influence and invoking his very name into himself and saying that his word was on my tongue. And that is how he was able to praise God through everything and how God was his only source. Now, David was one of the few people in the Old Testament to experience the Holy Spirit that we have available to you and I today upon himself. And the Holy Spirit is described in many different ways in the Old Testament. And each description carries a very specific meaning and a very specific purpose. And you see a list of these descriptions in the beginning of Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11, verse 1 says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From its roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of power. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Now, the direct application of this verse is pointing to David's descendant, which is Jesus. That is who that this verse is directly speaking to. But we get to see the uh, sevenfold spirit of God that is also talked about in Revelation. We get to see how that sevenfold spirit looks right here in Isaiah 11. And when you break down all seven of these attributes, doesn't it just kind of blow your mind that Jesus had all of this available to him as a human being? That he had the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, of counsel and power, of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord? How many people want all seven of those things working in their life? But you know what? As New Testament believers, all of us have this in our lives and available to us, especially those in the charismatic and Pentecostal movement who believe in a second outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You see, you have the Holy Spirit living inside you. You have the very Spirit of Jesus living within you, but you also have the Spirit that comes upon you in power. And that is what this is talking about right here. And David said that he had the Spirit of the Lord, which is the first of the seven attributes listed. The Spirit of the Lord is a leadership anointing. It is placed upon those chosen by God to lead his people, especially in the Old Testament. It encompasses all of the other six attributes listed under it. The New Testament examples of people who had these kind, this kind of anointing and this kind of power were the apostles. But in the Old Testament, it was generally reserved for just judges and kings and major prophets. And the Spirit of the Lord enabled David to have God's perspective on things. And that comes from a supernatural knowledge and fear of the Lord, which for the most part kept him very close to God, no matter what else was happening in his life. And it's that dependency is what made David a man after God's own heart. Throughout Psalms, you see over and over again, Dave saying things like what is in Psalm 22, when he said, I am a worm and not a man. I'm scorned by men. I'm despised by people. Those who, mock, those who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. 
You see, he states the truth of the situation right there in his life. Very graphically, he states the truth. This is what I feel, God. This is what is going on. This is what is happening to me. But then look, watch him turn around and praise God through it. He that trusts in the Lord, let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. What's David saying here? He's saying, I may be a worm. I may be totally rejected by humanity. Everybody may look at me and laugh and, and think that he's never going to account to anything. And they're right. But you know what? Let me tell you about who the worthy one really is. He's the Lord, the God of my life. He's the best friend and he's the lover of my soul. That's the power of the Spirit of the Lord on a person. One who sees God for who he is and then sees himself or herself for who they aren't. And when we have that proper perspective, the response is worship. The response is worship in every part of our lives. And because of that, the third attribute that David showed as being a man after God's own heart is that David learned the necessity of righteousness. Now, what is righteousness? Righteousness is simply right standing before God. It is being like an obedient son to your father. Now, even if you are a disobedient son, it doesn't change the fact that your father is still your father. But when you have right standing with your father, when you are an obedient and a good son, you have a much closer relationship with your father than you have, could have if you're the cigarette-smoking, leather-jacket-wearing, motorcycle-rider son that just kind of does whatever he wants. Does that make sense? That's what right standing with God is. Now, the Spirit of the Lord was upon David. He had the blessing. He had the guidance. He had the favor of God. However, saying all of that, through reading through his life, we see that David was a man of high passion. He was a very, very passionate man. He lived heart first. Now, being a passionate man, it made him very charismatic, made him very gregarious, made him the kind of person that you would naturally want to follow, the kind of person that you would want to be your friend, the kind of person that made him the most interesting man in the world at this time, somebody that people would want to emulate and be like. But however, that passionate, charismatic nature, that gregarious nature made him very impulsive. And is usually when David was very impulsive is when he got himself into trouble. For example, there's a situation where he was on the run from Saul. He's living in the desert. And Saul would send out search parties once in a while to try to find out where David was so he could kill him because he knew that he was going to be the next king of Israel. So David is out there with his mighty men, about 100 men sitting around him, and they would move around the desert to keep running from Saul. Well, they, they camped near a wealthy landover named Nabal. And... They didn't take anything from him. You know, they just were there. And Nabal benefited from this because David's men would protect his flocks from the rotting, the, um, marauding people that would try to steal his stuff. And they did this for free. They didn't, you know, ask anything from it. If somebody tried to attack Nabal, David's men would go and attack them and drive them back. Well, the time of uh, shearing the sheep comes 
um, around, and David said, hey, why don't you go over to Nabal and ask him, he goes, you know, you guys, you got hundreds and hundreds of sheep. Can we just have a couple just to have a feast with, just to, you know, have some around to eat and everything? He goes, I'm, I'm sure Nabal will be grateful for all the protection we've been giving him, and it won't even be a problem. Well, they go before Nabal and they say, hey, you know, David wants some sheep. You know, he's been offering this protection from you. You know, is, is, is that too much to ask? When really, no, that wasn't too much to ask. It'd be like if you were shoveling your neighbor's driveway and you ask him for a loaf of bread, you know, once because you ran out, that'd be kind of the same thing. And what's Nabal's response, though? Scorn. Who's David? He's some renegade out there. I'm not, I'm not giving you anything. I'm not doing this, you know, and calls down curses upon him. And David's response when his men came back and told him that was, Strap on your swords. I'm putting Nabal in the ground, and I'm putting him in the ground right now. And it's, sure enough, they, they all saddle up, get on their donkeys, or run down the hill. Swords, spears, shields, getting ready. They're going to take out Nabal and his whole family. Fortunately, Nabal's wife, Abigail, met them with an offering of food and an offering of everything and turned away David's wrath. And, and David even... Um, responded from that and said, and thank you, Abigail, you saved me from blood guilt. I, I lost my temper and, and everything. And eventually Nabal dies of natural causes and Abigail becomes David's wife. Another place where David was impulsive was with Bathsheba. Most of us know that story. David sees a woman bathing on the rooftop at night, sees how beautiful she is and takes, him, takes her into his bed. She becomes pregnant in order to avoid the scandal of him committing adultery. He decides to have her husband killed. And he is. Uriah is killed in battle. And David takes Bathsheba to be his wife to hide the pregnancy. Now, David is confronted by the prophet. The prophet comes and, and points out his sin publicly. And David David's response is, of course, immediate repentance and prayer, and that's where Psalm 51 comes through. Another impulsive decision of David was taking a census of the fighting men. This was bad because it was done out of pride. It was so David could say, I have 200,000 men under arms. The Bible forbade that in the Old Testament. A census could only be ordered by God. And then when a census was ordered, a guilt offering of a half a shekel had to be paid for each one counted. And that very law was placed in the Old Testament to prevent the taking of a census by a king to make him proud of his ability to raise a standing army. And it stated that when David did that, that he acted out of pride and a desire to glorify himself. And that he had come to the point in his life where he was relying more on his own strength in raising an army than that of God. And through all these situations, even though they were failures on his part, David learned through that the importance of a right standing with God, of righteousness with God. I want to speak to people here that may have failed today. Anybody here ever failed at something? I have. I could, if I could hold up three arms, I would. We've all had failures in our lives. We've all had times in our lives where we have let God down. Where we think that we have done something so bad, we've disqualified ourselves from being able to serve God. Failure can be a very strict teacher. 
that shows you who you are and why you need Jesus. Or you can let your spirit kill your soul and kill your spirit and take your eyes off of God. God will use even your failure to make you more like him. In fact, that is usually what God uses to make you more like him. Because he has to get rid of the pride before he can grow in you anymore. David chose to allow it to teach him, and he learned the importance of righteousness. As we said, righteousness means right standing before God. And ultimately, the biblical truth of it is our righteousness, yours and mine righteousness, is something that is imputed upon us by Jesus Christ. The Bible says that our righteousness is as filthy rags. We can't do anything to possibly earn more of God's favor in our life. And many people in these days would say that, you know, we're under grace, so we can do whatever we want. You know, grace is such a wonderful thing. We can, we can just do whatever we want, and because of the, of the righteousness of Christ that is imputed upon us, we can literally get away with murder. But that is not the biblical idea of what grace is. Paul teaches that in Romans 6.1 when he says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? No, by no means. We who are dead to sin, how can you live within it any longer? And I want to be very specific, and it's a bit complex to deal with this in a few seconds of the sermon, about the importance of our, our, our righteousness before God. God doesn't really get any more glory from us being righteous. It isn't like if we behave ourselves, God grows more powerful. It isn't like if we live righteous and holy before him, the angels sing louder. That's, that's, that's not the point of this. The reason that righteousness is so important in our own lives, the reason that we stand rightly before God, is so it opens doors in our life. Let me say that again. The reason that righteousness is so important is that it opens doors in our life. Our God is a very wise builder. He was a wise builder when he created the world. He was a wise builder when he gave people plans for the tabernacle and the temple. And he's a wise builder even in your life. And God will not and cannot build on a shaky foundation. So God will strip down everything that is shaky in your life so that he can build on it. And why he does that is because God wants to bless us. But he can't do it if the foundation is not strong. And righteousness is the key that opens up those kind of specific opportunities for God to bless us in this life. And it allows God to entrust us with greater and greater blessings because the foundation is firm. And God will not bless you if it means you're never going to grow past where you are right now. He can't. He won't. Because it would be like giving a, a son a serpent instead of a, a piece of, or instead of a fish or a stone instead of a piece of bread. It would turn into a, a curse and not a blessing if you are not standing right before him and he gives you more and more. Jesus said this as an example of our own personal righteousness. 
He said, if you can't handle worldly money, how can anyone trust you with true wealth? In other words, if you can't even handle what the world is giving you, how can I give you a position within my kingdom if you're not trying to live righteous before me? And that's what David learned in his life, even with the massive failures he had. And that is what enabled David to be one that chased after God's own heart, is that he desired the righteousness of God in his life. And because of all this, David knew the blessing of God. Let's review. David learned to praise God no matter the situation. That led him to acknowledge God as his only source. And though he learned the import and through all that, he learned the importance of our individual righteousness before God. And all of this, all of these things contributed to a man who was after God's own heart. And finally, we come to the point of David knowing the blessing of God in his life. And I love many of the Psalms, and it's really hard for me to choose a favorite. I love the idea of God being my shepherd. I love when the, po the poetry of him saying that deep calls out to deep as the noise of your waterfall. I love thinking of the, the mental imagery of a, a deer panting for streams of water, so my soul pants after you, O oh God. I love that kind of thought in my life. I love the beautiful acrostic of Psalm 119, longest chapter in the Bible that talks about having a love and a desire to have the Word of God within me. But I want to end today's message with an, an excerpt from a Psalm of David. And it's Psalm, in Psalm 24. It's a result of living a life heart first, of chasing after God even in the hard times and never losing faith when he failed God. David always pursued God despite the circumstances that he found himself in. Tammy, if you can come back up with Jennifer. David was able to pen these words to us and I want to close as we consider them for our lives so that we may live a life that is after God's own heart. Psalm 24, verse 3. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. He will receive a blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Savior. Such is a generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob.